Welcome to Conversations With. My name is Shaley Hugendorn and I live with Bipolar 2 Disorder. Sharing with others is healing both individually and collectively. Sharing our stories will educate others, bring more understanding, shed more light and smash more stigma. Our voices need to be heard. Our stories aren't over yet. This is Bipolar. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of This is Bipolar. I am Shaylee Hugendorf. I'm your host. I am a mental illness advocate, a podcaster, a mom, and a substitute teacher. I live with bipolar 2 disorder. My pronouns are she, her, and I live in Canada. And I'm really excited today because I have my friend who's going to introduce herself in a second, Nikki, and she applied to be on the parenting panel. And I was just uh, enamored by her when she was speaking. I was like, she's so interesting and has such beautiful things to say and her mission on how she helps others. And so I was really excited to interview her today. I also wanted to remind everybody of two things. One, since January, Apple Podcasts has unsubscribed a lot of people to podcasts. So if you are an Apple subscriber, can you go check if you're still following because they might have unsubscribed you. And I don't want you to miss any episodes. And I love when people subscribe because it helps get all of this out there and people that can just hear lived experience because I know there's so many um, struggling alone. Another exciting thing, if you've been listening for a while, you all know this was really hard for me to do because I was very nervous, but I finally started subscriptions. And so I have subscriptions on Instagram, $6.99 US a month, and you get extra content. And we have a besties channel, which is basically like a place that we all message um, back and forth to each other and talk to everyone. And, or you can just sit back and watch the extra content. We always, always do an extra going deeper with each of our guests that is exclusive for that space. So if this work means anything to you or you want to support, I would be super forever grateful. You can go to at this.is.bipolar and subscribe there. Okay, all of that out of the way. Let's get to the good stuff. Nikki, could you tell us a few things about yourself? For sure. Um, my name is Nikki and I live in Long Beach, California, uh, right outside of Los Angeles. And I'm a mental health coach. Um, I work with children and parents, uh, specifically teens, uh, young athletes and teens who are making that transition to go to college who are struggling with their mental health. I also help their parents become an advocate for their mental health, kind of getting them a little perspective and better understanding of what's going on. I myself have bipolar one disorder. I have been in remission or recovery, so to speak, for the last nine years. Um, but I've been struggling with it and living with it for more than 20 years. Um, in addition to that, I'm a mother of a six-year-old. I am married. To, I have a wonderfully supportive wife. And um, in my free time, I love cycling. So that's a little bit about me. Oh, nice. So like street cycling or do you go like mountain biking? Street cycling, yeah, on the roads or by the beach and stuff. Yeah, oh, very mindful practices, yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, we have, I live in Vancouver, um, all by the mountains. And so we have like some hardcore mountain yeah. biker down like actual real mountains. 
I like biking like on flat spaces as well. <laughs> yeah, me as well. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here. I would love to just dive right in and I would like to go back and just talk about when did you maybe um, or did you notice that maybe there was something going on or something different or maybe your first, um, you know, mental health crisis or just take me back to when when things started for you? Yeah, for sure. Um, as a kid, I was always kind of different. I was in the gifted program as a young kid, um, kind of just became troublesome because I was aging out of the grades that I was in. So they wanted me to jump grades. My parents didn't agree. So they put me in private school. Sports and athletics were always a huge part of my life. And so my parents, rather than when they were told I was hyperactive, rather than medicating me, they put me into sports, kind of wear her out kind of idea. And I loved it because I really thrived there. But it wasn't until my teens that I really started to know th notice things. And it wasn't the manic side of things. The manic side for me was great. I could go for days. I had all these great ideas. I could, you know, that was never the problem. I would complain about when I would crash. And that started to look like my senior year, we were playing CIF championships for volleyball, which in California is a big deal. And I crashed right before. And so I couldn't get out of bed that day. And the um, receptionist at our high school called me and said, you can't play tonight unless you're there half the day. So my friends came and picked me up. I played the game. The next day, I still couldn't get out of bed. But that's what it started to look like. So when I went off to college, I started to notice those depressive side of things. I went to school. I played basketball at Washington State University. Much darker up there than San Diego, where I grew up on the beach. So my first winter was extremely tragic. I didn't know what I was experiencing. Why was I depressed? Why was I crying for no reason? Um, missing practices, oversleeping, not going to class. It was that kind of behavior that was really not typical for me. And so the manic side of things was me feeling back normal. Okay, I'm good. I can go today. I can go to class. And you would see me out and about being my normal self. So when I first started talking to doctors, it was never a conversation about, wow, I feel like I have all this energy or I'm doing this. It was always about the depression. So I was often prescribed antidepressants. I didn't until way later put the connection of all the things that come with mania, bad decisions, poor decisions regarding money, um, hypersexuality, all those things really came to play where it seemed a little different than the people I was around, but it was never any warning flags enough for me to take notice. Right. It didn't start to really become a thing until 2004 when I had a lot of trauma going on in my life. I was working in television and um, I was experiencing sexual harassment and it got out into the news. It was a big deal. It was a big television station, one of the big three in America. And so when that happened, at the same time, my father told me he had prostate cancer and I didn't really know what that meant. My parents were divorced. I am the soul in terms of taking care of him and everything. And everything kind of felt like it was just collapsing at the same time. And I hadn't been sleeping. I was experiencing mania. My body went into hyper overdrive and all I wanted to do was sleep. And so that first hospitalization, I don't even know if I really 
thought I want to, and I apologize, I should say this is, you know, trigger warnings in terms of talking about suicide. Um, but I don't know if I necessarily wanted to end my life. Mm. It was more, I just wanted to sleep and I was exhausted and I couldn't handle, and I didn't have the coping mechanisms. I didn't have the tools to navigate through that really stressful time. And so unfortunately that was the path I took. Um, in the hospital was when I first heard the term of being bipolar. It's the first time anyone had ever said that to me. I have a, a family history of mental illness in my family on my father's side. My aunt was schizophrenic and my uncle was bipolar. But those things were always discussed in a very negative way that something was wrong with them. Right. And so my whole idea when I heard that I might have bipolar disorder, I didn't want anything to be wrong with me. So I didn't listen because of all the stigma that comes with it and all of the shame that I had seen within my family. I said, nope, that's not me. I'm high performing. I'm doing great. I'm in college. I may not go to class, but I'm still doing great in college and graduated in four years. So it was that weird, um, you know, they just didn't add up. It didn't match up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that that's one of the most tricky parts of getting a diagnosis or getting people to understand because it's not all it's there's only been a few things shown on television or talked about right and it's either you're depressed and you're totally in bed or you're manic and you probably commit a crime or buy a boat or you're usually like a mom that paints that <laughs> takes off from her kids right yeah every yeah time, every time yes so when she's like starting to be an artist and then she's usually like wearing a like fun fur jacket that like yeah. I own and then she leaves her kids yeah I'm like I'm just waiting and then they're like bing she's bipolar I'm like I can't paint but <laughs> jokes aside yeah um, it's people don't think of folks with bipolar as high functioning right or um like my GP my general practitioner flat out said to me you when I brought some stuff I'm like hey like I actually, you know, identify with a lot of these symptoms. And he's like, yeah, you wouldn't have your degree or be a good mom. So no, you're not bipolar. And I'm like, so yeah, that put me back like seven years. Yeah. Like you, I would always yeah. go for help when I got depressed because the other me was obviously me, right? Like, that's how you yeah, feel. Yeah. I don't, I don't need sleep. And I, yeah. I don't need to stop talking like ever. Right? <laughs> yeah. And you don't want to stop all the, you know, the great things that are going through your mind. And it's funny you say about art because I was an artist. Mm -hmm. And one of the first things I had a friend and she would call and she would know immediately if I was working on a, a piece of art or whatever, because she's like, you get so focused that you can't even talk to people. And I would go through the night. I minored in fine arts and I would just work on art through the night. And my teammates who were my roommates were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. I've got, I've got to finish this. And so looking back, it was so easy. Like, why didn't anyone say it earlier? But I don't think there was as much information as to what bipolar truly is. Yeah. We only highlight those extremes and not everything where we live mostly in between. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's so important. The in-betweens. I know a lot of times when people first find out, they just expect me to be one or the other all the time. <laughs> and I had, you know, huge periods of what I now learned over the last few years is called euthymia or I, you know, that's how I could go so long probably without getting a diagnosis, 
you know, on top of having a, a GP that didn't really understand bipolar disorder. But yeah, there are times of just, oh, you know, I'm, I'm okay. I was just saying to my friends, cause they were checking in on me cause it's January and I don't have a really good relationship with January. And I was like, uh, I'm okay. Right. <laughs> and it's interesting. Cause my, I'm, I'm like, you can be safe in January. January cannot be terrible. Like telling myself the things, but it's interesting because I feel it in my body. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you said that you had, um, you had an attempt. Um, I think maybe you had two, one, two, yes, two. And mm-hmm. I'm curious about leading up to that. What did that look like? Because I've talked to a few people where they had the warning signs, like people probably could have seen. And then I had some other people that were just like had always kind of had suicidal ideation and thoughts in the back of their head. And then when their attempt was, they just, it was impulsive. And so I'm curious, just because I just think it's so important to talk about, curious what that looked like for you, like the days leading up. And I know you already mentioned, which is really important that you weren't actually thinking I want to die. You were thinking, I want to sleep. I want this to end in terms of how I feel. But yeah, yeah. do you talk us through through that? Yeah. So I started having those thoughts in college when things got really rough and things weren't as I had expected. I went to college on a full ride to play basketball And it seemed like my world was crumbling in terms of I wasn't playing well, school was rough, relationships were rough, I was far away from home, weather was different than I was used to. So it was just a lot to deal with. And I think dealing with my own internal mental health battles didn't help. Um, The first time I thought, and it gradually grew. So the first time I had feelings was I just wanted to run away. I packed up my car. I told my mom I'm coming back home um, and I was ready and she kind of talked me, you know, talked me down. And I remember laying on the floor and I was crying and it was a dark, dark day in Washington. And I said, God, please, please just, you know, tell me it's going to be okay. And I'm not kidding. Um, Light just came through. The clouds parted and this beam of sunshine warmed my body. And some people may not believe this or, you know, think it's hokey, but it warmed my whole body to the point of like, okay, I need to pull it together, try to figure this out. And that was the first time I went to a doctor to even talk about what I was going through. Because I've always been a tight-lipped person when it comes to myself, what I'm experiencing. My first attempt was, I think, a lot of things at once. Everything was just compounded and I just couldn't even get out of it. And that was my thing of, I want to sleep. I want to, I just need to stop my reality right now. It wasn't that I don't want to continue with my life, but I don't want to continue with the way it is right now. How can I do that? And so it was just trying to sleep because right every, when you sleep the next day, usually things are better. It's like, if you can just get to sleep, that was my rationale. And so that was that way. Now, the second time was a long drawn out. People should have seen it coming. Mm. Had they known the signs or what I was going through. I was struggling with employment. I had been um, let go several times because of me calling in sick a lot. This was one of the parts of, you know, when you crash, you're um, not stable. And I was calling in sick and not dependable. And I was in television. I was a producer at the time and just not showing up last minute because I was working horrible hours. I was working. I'd be at work at one in the morning. Um, 
So, and I would drink two Red Bulls every day. It was horrible. I mean, I was not living a healthy life. And so I'd come home and I'd sleep and then I tried to have a normal life. So my life was all over the place. And then I had a hard time after television, kind of getting back on my feet of what do I want to do now? What's right for me? And I had a lot of jobs that I was just let go of for one reason or another. And every time that happened, I just would sink deeper and deeper into depression. And this happened over a few years. It wasn't just overnight, but it came to the point of where I was always sick. I was not wanting to be social, go out. I could, you know, wasn't even looking for jobs. I'd be in bed all day. And then my wife would get home from work at around five. So at four o'clock, I had to get out of bed and shower and start cooking dinner to look like I'd done something that day. Right. And so, yeah. And you feel that shame again. What's wrong with me? Along with that, I had a hip injury in college. Later on, as I started to experience pain and my instability, I was given those painkillers again. I started to rely on those to kind of lift me up when I was depressed. When I was manic, I didn't need them. It was fine. I was feeling good. When I was depressed, those body aches that come with it, all those different you know symptoms that come with depression, I pop a couple painkillers and they'd go away and I could suddenly get out of bed. But if I ran out of them, well, then I was right back. So it was constantly fluctuating of, wow, Nikki seems good. She seems okay. She's all right. She's doing okay. No, now she's really not doing well. And she's not doing well for a long period of time. And so I think um, that, and then my relationship, I had just been married a year, um, but we both had our own battles. My wife was struggling with alcohol. um, And so I think that was her coping mechanism for what was going on and maybe why she didn't see what was going on. Um, And she kicks herself in the butt all the time. Like, gosh, knowing now she's, I'm like, it's not, there's nothing that could have been done, you know, but it was just one of those things. And so finally it was actually her family does this volunteer where they go to a psych ward to a mental hospital to sing Christmas carols every year. My first, right? It is. It's a gorgeous thing. And they bring all this light to it and everything. Um, But I had gone the past year, November and December are my bad months. That's when I've had my two attempts. This in December, it was December 6th, um, because I know because they were going to this. I was sick. I couldn't go. I felt very left out. Um, Again, for some reason, I can't be a part of something. My body's holding me back. Why is it doing that? And I just got into this horrible spiral of this world would be better off without me. And I'm a burden and I'm holding people back. And, you know, my wife would be better off without me. And just a lot of those thoughts. And it just was this, the blinders just came on and the focus of the world would be better without me got so narrow that I convinced myself that was the case. And it was impulsive in the matter of like, I made that decision and it happened, but um, a lo- I think now that I've made people more aware, they're like, wow, we should have seen that. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents, a lot of people around me feel really bad for not noticing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard too, right? Especially if it's um, 
I don't know, I find in my relationship, sometimes I think like my partner forgets to ask like how I'm doing or whatever, because he's so used to seeing me before in long periods of depression in the winter, that was just our life. Right. So he didn't, you know, it's almost like got so used to it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like, yeah, sometimes, and it, yeah, sometimes it isn't sudden. Right. Yeah. And yeah. mine was completely cyclical. I don't know about yours. You mentioned, I'm curious about that. You mentioned yeah. November and December. So mine would be, I would be, of course, there would be weeks of euthymia within there, but usually I would start to go downhill in October. I'll have a blip for two weeks in December. And then by the end of the first week of January, I'm mm. like, there's no feeling. And yeah. then literally to like my birthday's in April, but literally okay. between the... April 12th and the beginning of May, I would just wake up and it would be like, hey, here wow. we go. Yeah. 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 I, mine's kind of the same. Um, November and December are tough. Um, I think I'm really seasonal. Like the seasons really affect me. Yeah. Um, so when it starts to get dark, that, that gets tough for me. Time change. I struggle in March after the time change. Um, and so then I go, so I'm good usually January, February, March, the time change takes me a little while to rebound. Um, April, May, June, I'm good. Usually around July, which is ironic because it's my birthday month. Mm. Uh, my birthday is July 14th, but usually around July, I don't know if it's more sunlight. Um, there have been studies that have proven that, uh, you know, extra, it can push you into mania. Two years ago, 4th of July, um, I was literally running down the street screaming because I was in a manic state and I didn't want anyone to stop me. And, you know, I had, they were going to call to figure out, to get me into the hospital, but I didn't want that. And it was just this ball of chaos that we somehow shielded my son from, which is just thanks to my wonderful neighbors, but it was, and so now I pay attention to that, to the summertime because I'm a beach girl and I love the sun. But it's paying attention to, okay, you know, hey, am I getting a little too much um, yeah. and just my personality? And my wife now, she she's very attentive, sometimes too much. I tell her sometimes, like, I'm okay, <laughs> you know, I'm all right, like, it's yeah. all good. But she does check in and we've had conversations and actually we've gone to therapy mm-hmm. on how to check in because I don't like having to always self-check. Cause sometimes I'm like, I'm good. I'm going, I'm, you know, I got like, things to do. I got to right. Do and, and yeah. And we're reminded every single day that we have this, you know, every day when I take my medication every day. And so sometimes it's like, you don't want someone checking in, but we've learned the right language that I can now accept and say, right. And say, wow, she's coming from a, a truly sincere place. And I need to receive that with an open heart rather than being defensive and be like, well, no, what's wrong with me? Cause that's what I'd say. I'm fine. What are you talking about? What's wrong yeah. with you? Like, you know, <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hear you. That's so interesting because my last conversation that I w- had on the podcast, we were talking about, um, cause I know I have warning signs and I have like beginning middle, like I tried to, when I'm doing, you know, when I'm euthymic, try to track things. And we, we had a really good conversation about language because, the language, my husband used to get confused because 
the language he would use when I was depressed was really helpful, but then he would try and use that same language mm -hmm. when I was hypomanic. And I was yeah. like, oh no, yeah. no, 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 you know, nothing. Yeah. I know everything. So like what? And right. so it was really interesting. And I actually talked to him about that. And I think we had figured it out inadvertently, but I was like, let's have a conversation about this. And let's, I, I want to notice what is helpful things that you say or do or like I find um if I'm really really amped up and talking talking uh, like just if he'll just you know just put his hand like on my leg or on my like to bring me back into my body yeah. and like put his hand you know I feel like more of a connection there so then I'm more willing to hear what he's saying so mm -hmm. we're trying to explore that um yeah. do you notice that you need different language in different episodes oh for sure I'm a softie when I'm depressed, I am super sensitive, emotional, you know, anything you say hurts physically and emotionally. Like, so she knows to be very empathetic. That's what I ask is just, you know, have empathy. How are you doing? Can I do anything for you? Um, that kind of way. If I'm on the manic side, it's definitely more of a reasoning kind of thing. Like, hey, I've noticed this, or, you know, um, you seem to be because I'm a movement person and maybe that's why I did sports a lot. But like sometimes at night when we get in bed, I am like all over the place. I can't settle. I am fidgety. And I now I'm to the point where I know, okay, I should go do some push-ups or some jumping jacks just to get that little bit out. And she knows, she doesn't think I'm weird doing it. You know, yeah. she knows that I'm, and she even said the other night, I actually forgot to take my medication for some reason. I've never forget but I went into the bathroom and I saw it sitting there and she goes, I was wondering, cause you usually are knocked out. And I was all over the place and watched the Emmys in one sitting. And it was very unlike me. So I think on that side, it's more of a observation kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's really interesting. I really want to explore that more and just, and, and see, cause I haven't been um, hypomatic in a really long time. So it's like, I want to experiment and see if the things that I've told him that I think <laughs> might work or listen actually do. But uh, that yeah. also, I also don't want to experiment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be there. Yeah. What would you say? Um, what would you say about like, what is the, what is the biggest thing that, okay. Two parter. What is the hardest thing in about living with bipolar and how that works in your relationship? And then also too, with being in a same-sex marriage, how how does that, how does your bipolar affect that? Can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, I think um, with being in a relationship just in general and having bipolar, um, it's communication. And I am not good at that. <laughs> I'll be honest. I worked as a reporter for years and everything, but when it comes to communicating my feelings, I've really worked on that because there was a block of being able to verbalize what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. So being bipolar, being in a relationship, being open to communication, and then being okay with like not being okay. So I used to get really embarrassed or feel bad if I needed a day to just sit on the couch, to just chill and let my brain relax, and especially having a child. But now there's times where I can say, you know what, I need an hour or two. 
I, it, that's, and I will be better that way. And so that's the agreement with us is that if I vocalize it, there's no shame, there's no judgment. It's just where I am and where I need to be. Um, in terms of being in a same sex relationship, I think the hardest thing for me immediately, I was with men most of my early life um, until 30. So about the same time, everything was happening about the same time as I was exploring um, being with women. And so the idea of stigma and shame with one being labeled, okay, labeled gay, and then now I gotta be labeled bipolar, I'm black, like just label, I hate labels in general. And they really frustrated me because I feel like they put us in a box, they, you know, put you in the corner and there's so much more to me than that. And so there was, there was a lot of shame of like, gosh, now I've got to deal with this. And now I've got to explain something else to people. Um, because there is always that conversation at first, if you're working somewhere or whatever, of, yes, I'm married to a woman or, um, and then now how do you integrate? Like I'm bipolar as well. So it's a lot of explaining of self. But what I've kind of gotten to a place, um, I've been with my wife 15 years now, and I've been in recovery for bipolar nine years. And so for me, it's really black and white of like, this is who I am. This yeah. is, you know, this is who I am. This take it or leave it. Um, and I know a lot of other people aren't fortunate enough to be in that place where they can be open and honest. Um, I was working actually for a company where my boss constantly used the term bipolar to categorize people who maybe changed their mind because they didn't want to purchase a package versus the other. It was a marketing company. And he was like, yeah, she went back. She's so bipolar. And I heard it and heard it and heard it. And one day I blew up and I said, she's not bipolar. Like you can't diagnose this woman. This is a very serious mental illness. So then like, and I wasn't even in a conscious state as I was just going. Yeah. And then I had, I got pulled into my boss's office with the HR person and someone else as a witness to have a discussion about the whole thing. And it was like embarrassing, but at the same time, I, I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to stand up because that's wrong. And that's my whole thing about just even speaking about my story is I want to share because for so long people, we couldn't because there was so much stigma and so much shame in it. Yeah. Yeah. And when you, when you went, so after your first hospitalization, that that's when you got your diagnosis? I was diagnosed. I didn't do anything about it. Ah, um, okay. So yeah. you were just like, yeah, no, I'm not, that label is not for me. And you didn't take medication or go any further with that? Correct. Yeah. The hospital I was in was um, maximum security. So I saw really extreme, like from out of movies things, which allowed me to separate myself as I am not that I am not what you're saying I am I know who I am right. um definitely not the right thing to do at that time but that's where I was with that and then it's difficult because you're always after a hospitalization or something is how do you get back into society how do you explain what you went through or what happened or anything like that but I went on um that was 2004 um, and then it was 2014, 10 years and one month. Yeah, I know. Um, and I think in that time I was able to manage it because I was really closed off. Um, I, my relationships were at a distance. I did what I needed to do. If I needed to sleep, I slept. If I, you know, I would just sleep and work basically and eat, um, because 
my body was all over the place. And so, and I still struggled. Um, a lot of times it's saying things that aren't the truth to kind of cover up what maybe is going on. Um, I mean, I don't know how many times I said my grandmother had just passed away. I never knew my grandmother. She passed away before I was born, but I use it as an excuse all the time because I didn't want karma to get me for saying about someone who was alive. But You're when so I couldn't, <laughs> like, I didn't know. But I would, you know, use her and yeah. like, I remember I started a job in New York and it was so difficult. I moved in the middle of winter. It was so horrible. My first day I got to, to work and I was crying. I couldn't stop crying. And they're like, are, are you okay? Which, right. Anyone would say. And I was like, oh, my grandmother passed away yeah. because that's easier to say than I don't know what's wrong with me. And yeah. I don't know. I'm leaking. I don't, I don't yes. know. Yes. <laughs> right. Like I'm supposed to go on air and my mascara is running. And like, wow. it was to that point and it was just really difficult. So it took 10 years and then it took my second hospitalization for me to say enough is enough. And it's funny you say about your general practitioner. So you get out of the hospital and they don't really do much. They hand you some papers and your personal yeah, belongings really. and they're like, follow up with someone, you know? And yeah, no, that's literally it. They You're just kind of in place. No, no. Oh. Um, yeah, no, it was go find someone. Um, yeah. So I had a gen. good luck basically. Yeah. Get on out. <laughs> you know? oh, yes. Yeah, I know. And so I, I had a general practitioner that, I went to like, if I had a sinus infection and yeah. stuff, not very deep. And we went and saw him and I'm not kidding. He said, have you ever seen that movie? It's a wonderful life. Yeah. You should watch that sometime. That'll help you. Thanks, sir. I could not. And I was like, and my wife was like holding my hand, squeezing it. She's yeah, like, like, please don't, please don't. Yeah. Yeah. She, Cause I was ready to get up and walk away. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. Luckily, he knew the psychiatrist across the street. We walk in, probably 80, 85-year-old gentleman. So when I first walk in, I'm like, what is this guy going to know about me? You know? And so again, she said, give it a chance. Yeah. So I gave it a chance. And he introduced me to my now therapist and current psychiatrist. And my therapist is the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, she saw me for who I am. She got me through that really, really difficult time of first being on medication and figuring out who am I? How does my brain work now? I thought this way for 30 some years. Now you want me to now think with, you know, these heavy, heavy mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. Like it's just, it's a different time. And so she helped me through that, but it was me wanting to change. I was so sick of living that way. Um, and I, we had been married one year, um, almost, yeah, one year and a month. And I wanted to, we wanted to start a family. We were talking about starting a family and I didn't want to be that stereotypical mom who ran away or had these meltdowns or yelled at her child or whatever may be. Um, so I bought in and again, it was my therapist who helped me do that. She wow. really helped me buy into this process because I thought I knew everything and I didn't want to hear someone else's perspective. And she, she changed my life. She really did. 
shout out, shout yeah, out. Yeah, right. Awesome. <laughs> Major shout out. Do you still have, do you, and you still see her? Not as often. Um, if I need a tune up, she calls it. I love um, it. I haven't talked to her probably in about. You haven't done other therapists. You you found your one. Oh yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I've went yeah. to tons. I just now think I've like really found my person. The other ones helped, but yeah. there's never like a yes a really big connection. And I think it's because, um, like I can talk and think and fast or what whatever. I yeah. think talk therapy amazing, but I think getting close to this person we've been doing more somatic therapies so oh, okay like with our bodies like getting right them, like you yeah. sport. i am yeah. not sporty <laughs> i think i'm a fitness influencer if i do like <laughs> so, but and, and i played i played yeah. basketball you would like to okay. know my daughters would tell you right away that um the second game in my senior year i it's very confusing that you switch sides <laughs> and i'm oh totally my gosh. on my own basket and i thought everyone was cheering for me but they were saying oh, oh. go the other way yeah, yeah yeah so i'm not sporting oh my gosh that's I, so, so funny i don't get out as yeah. much of the feelings that i need to get out and i'm telling you i it it, it yeah really really helps it, yeah yeah it's just so different whether and not just with exercise like I've been doing like tapping or like yes. things like yeah. that and then I remember when people were like do some breath work and I was yes. like that sounds torturous before. <laughs> that would be that would be Shaley before torturous yeah. and then my problems are way too big for some breathing okay so and then now it's my nervous system is like thank you yeah yeah Oh, I was the queen of like meditation is right. Dope, right. Like you want me to breathe? I'm going to hyperventilate, yeah, but I think, totally. yeah. Right. And so I think what happened, I saw, like you said, I mean, I can't even count how many psychiatrists and therapists I saw through the years. And I always felt that I was kind of more knowledgeable or smarter than them or yeah, we totally I, are. Right. Right. And so. <laughs> That's yeah, but that was the thing. Maybe it's her intelligence, but she also worked through cognition, through cognitive behavioral therapy, yeah. things like biofeedback, breathing, meditation. Oh, yeah. Um, she, you know, just uh, hypnotizing even, and then really tapping back in into the importance of doing sports or whatever activity. Cause I get lost that for a while during my depression. Yeah. I didn't work out for weeks, probably months, which is so unlike me. And now I run, it's been a little cold. So probably like three times a week, but in the summer I'll run like five times a week. Easy. Yeah. And then sometimes like I'll cycle on the weekends or whatever else. And I try to incorporate activity in every way because she literally wrote a prescription or my psychiatrist rather wrote a prescription to work out. And she said, give this to your wife. If she ever gives you a hard time about having oh, to go work out. To go. Oh, that's yeah. And that's been some of the best things. So shifting my mindset in terms of being open to what can help and not being closed off of like, I know it, this is it. This is what I have. There's nothing you can do. Yeah. Um, it's that buy-in. I think that first step 
that really gets people to get that help that they need. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I wanted that. help. I was like banging down the door for the help and couldn't, Mm -hmm. and couldn't get it. You know, I Mm -hmm. was like, I think this is like, what's wrong with me. I went, I every antidepressant or whatever. And still I didn't get the help I needed until here we it's free healthcare. Right. Or yeah. But that also looks like, um, wait, like there's a list right now, I think in my province, there's a list, I think it's a, a year and a half to see a psychiatrist. So wow. your choices are to go to emergency. So then half the people don't go because they're afraid of getting committed, which if you need to, please go. It's a way, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it, it you need to, yeah. when you need to, you need to, if you're a harm to yourself or others go. Um, yeah. uh, but you have to go to emergency. And then I had to talk to emergency psych and they didn't, um, yeah. I didn't go to the psych, psych ward. And in fact, actually I was mad because I was like, I wanted because, yeah. because I just didn't want to leave without getting help. Did, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and what awareness you had about yourself though. Uh, I think it was like desperation. Honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I knew, I knew there could be a different way. And I remember my first medicated winter and I remember looking around and being like, people can actually feel okay in the winter. <laughs> I would remember we'd go for drives and I would be looking and when people had their, not in a creepy way. Okay. Everybody, but <laughs> when people had their windows or when you're driving by, I would look in and I was like, I wonder what their life is like. I wonder, you know, I wonder if they want to disappear like me. And then I was, everyone just looked like they were like, doing life right and I would be like not yeah (laughs) so yeah that that wonderful you know and I was it perfect no but I I haven't had um a deep deep depression in 13 years last year was the first year I had a low grade one and it was I was terrified of of going back it was just a taste Um, and I think it took me a while to realize because I downplayed it because it wasn't as bad as pre-medication. So therefore it probably wasn't just depression. And then I was like, Whoa, that, you know, I wasn't doing well. So were you hesitant to take medication or by then you were all in? No, I was hesitant. I hated it. Yeah. Uh Yeah. It took a long time for me. I took it but I resented it every day. I mean, I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And my, and I had really adverse reactions, um, to I I'm on lithium. And so I had really adverse reactions. So I had the handshakes, like almost like TD, um, upset stomach, seriously upset stomach. Um, there was a lot of things. And so every day, and then just the cognition because your cognition changes, I couldn't find words for a long time. And that frustration of, I used to do live on air reports and now I can't even have a conversation. So understanding that, but I, I stuck with it. I don't think I've missed a day truly unless on accident. I, since I've done, I started because I know it's that important. And again, I believe in the fact that it takes the medication, it takes the cognitive behavioral therapy, it takes changing your whole life, not in a bad way, in a great way. I am doing great, but I have changed my daily routine to incorporate all the things that I need. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think when you do that, you can, you can flourish, right? I was curious. I was like, this could not be a death sentence for me when I found out because I had a two, almost three, almost five-year-old. And I, I was like, I have to, I have to be better for them because I could be totally amazing mom all day. And then I would like pass the kids off and then I would either be in bed or doing my next project or whatever it was. Um, Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I know we're talking a lot about like getting all the things, right? Like I feel like you can only get so much better with medication or you can only get so much better with this or this you have to find out you know what works for you and take the help and i know that some people um don't have access to to therapy or don't have access to other things and that brings me to we were talking about earlier that you work with nami which stands for national alliance. national alliance on mental illness yeah that <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what your work with that? And then also yeah. I like just tell people where they can go to get some of these resources. Yeah. NAMI.org is the main website, but depending on where people are located in the U S um, so there's Los Angeles has a bunch of chapters mm-hmm. and how I got started, actually a friend of mine introduced me to them and I appreciated they have free courses that can really help. So I did the peer-to-peer course originally, which just kind of, one, let me meet other people who were going through the same things myself, but then also just kind of walk through some of the ways to operate in the world with a serious mental illness. And most people had bipolar, there was some other mental illnesses, but it was just it was a six week program and it was a way to create a bond with other people who are going through that, but then also getting some life skills. And then my wife did the family to family, which is really great for support group in terms of family, understanding what people are going through. So those are free courses. They also have free support groups. Some are weekly, some are monthly, but people can participate. They can talk, they can hear other people's stories a lot of them these days are online, so they don't even have to go somewhere. They yeah, don't even have to, helpful. right? They don't have to go somewhere to do it. And then what I do is I speak through their Ending the Silence program. And that's people who go into high schools and talk to the students or the parents or the teachers about mental health, trying to stop the stigma, but also while sharing their own story. So we will discuss what is what is mental health look like what is you know mental illness how can you help a friend who can you turn to if you're feeling this way but i also share some of maybe the things that i missed myself or things that could have seen at that time and relate it to their lives as as teenagers and um and so nami does that free for the schools to bring that information and really what they're trying to do is eliminate stigma through education that's the whole goal And I think that that's exactly where we all need to be, is the more educated we can be, then we understand what people are going through, and then we have empathy. And that's why I've kind of really latched on to NAMI. I appreciate the messaging. And they are growing in terms of people recognizing them, recognizing the name, and then having more events. They have a big NAMI walks every year for a fundraiser. But it's a cool event where you get out with people and they have different booths where you can learn things or just a kind of a cool festival. So it's really appreciating people who live every day with a mental illness. 
Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I know I need to look a little bit more into what I know we have something kind of similar in Canada, but I don't know of um, huge organizations that go into schools. Uh, that's actually one of I've done a few I've done some at, um, talking at universities and colleges. But I would love to do that because I feel like it would like combine my teacher self with yeah. my speaker and then bring all that in together. I'm I'm so um, yeah, I'm so curious about looking into that. I would love that. I love that you're doing that. Um, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about your work. I don't know if you've heard, so I just need to say this. I don't know if you've heard other podcasts. So I am not talking about the type of coach that you are, but I tell me about your training and tell me about what you do, because my fear online is that everyone is a coach. Right. And there, someone said, well, you, you should coach because you know a little bit more than so-and-so about, but I'm like, I could mentor and I could be your bipolar bestie, but I'm finding that people are using the term really, you know, loosely and it's kind of scary, but tell me about your training and what you do. I'd love to, to hear about that. Yeah. A lot of people are throwing that word around. It's become kind of the new thing. And yeah. a lot of coaches are not certified. A lot of people feel like they do know something and they can be, you know, a person that you can talk to or help. But I went to uh, Jay Shetty certification. Oh, school. Yeah. yeah. So I was really into his book, Think Like a Monk. And I loved what he was saying. And I just felt like it really uh, resonated with what I was experiencing, what I was going through. And that year when I was reading it, he started his school. He started it in 2020 and then I enrolled actually the end of 2020 um, and it's a year long program, but what he does is really um, dive into the, where you are literally coaching someone to their goal and it's taking it piece by piece and step by step and leading them along the way, but allowing them for their self-discovery. And so for me, um, when I work with my clients, it's, What's our big goal? Yep. And then what are some attainable goals along the way? So you're not making this big daunting process of, oh gosh, I want to feel better or something like that. Okay, yeah. you want to feel better. How can we get there? And so a lot of my work is helping people incorporate daily routines into their life. So it's step-by-step -step little bits where they're changing their life, kind of like I did for myself, but it's not daunting in the sense of like, oh, I've got to change everything. It becomes part of their life. So they're not thinking first thing in the morning, I need to do this, this, and this. It's just rolls right into their day. When I wake up in the morning, I walk my dog. My walking clothes are already out there. They're ready to go because I've done that the night before. The night before I've already planned out my next day. So I don't have to think and get stuck in that rut of, oh, what do I do? I don't know. I should do this. No, it's already planned out for me. And so it allows my brain to kind of relax a little bit. And so the people I work with who are struggling with their mental health, we talk about their goal, but then we really look at their life and how can we reach that goal by changing little things in their life. And we dive deep into things about them, but it's definitely not therapy. Therapy is more about how did you get here? What happened in your life? How'd you get right. very forward looking? Um, and it really, I was attracted to it because I was a, an athlete, so I was coached. 
a lot in my life. Yeah. How did it, you know, how did I win? We came up with a game plan together. We put that game plan in place. We had a goal. And so it's kind of that same idea. So it really came naturally for me, actually, yeah. in terms of what I wanted to do, because I can't do it for them. I can only offer suggestions. I can only walk with them through this journey, but it's on them because once we're done, they have to do it for themselves. I can't hold their hand the rest of the time. I do a six week program and usually, you know, by six weeks, we have a plan in place and now they've been doing it little by little leading up to this time where they're not like, oh gosh, what am I going to do now? Yeah. They're like, okay, I've got this. I can do this. And we figured it out and here's my goal and I'm achieving it. That's amazing. So what type, I'm going to put all of your information below. So if people want to get a hold of you, it'll be all in the show notes. Um, but what, like, what is your, what, I, I don't know, type, I don't type of client or person, like, who do you like to coach most or who could come to your um, courses? I'd love to hear, hear about that in case someone's listening being like, do I, should I go to that course? <laughs> Yeah, I work mostly with teens, um, preteens, usually about 13 and up, kids who are struggling with their mental health, um, maybe it's affecting their school, um, maybe they're coming out of a hospitalization, but it's just helping them get back on track for what is, you know, is their school that they want to get uh, back into school or they want to now go to college and then um, with the parents, it's understanding what their child is going through and how can they best advocate for their child. Um, if they think that, oh, my kidney, they need to get up and be doing stuff right now and this and that and go, well, no, wait, let's, let's have perspective. Let's understand what your child is going through. If they, you know, have bipolar disorder, maybe their cognition is low, they're dealing with depression and you know, doing homework exhausts them. Who knows? But so it's, it's understanding. And then um, I also work with young athletes. Um, I do uh, five ways for, well, per, for parents, I also do uh, a webinar, five ways to advocate for your young athlete. It's wow. just things like, um, you know, not pushing them too much too soon. Um, kind of where these kids right now are, starting out to do travel ball at a younger age they feel like they need to compete younger and younger but things like tommy john surgery which is the surgery of you know a pitcher typically their elbow okay. um so it used to be like pitchers in the major leagues who were in their 30s um i think tommy john was like 34 something like that but now these surgeries are happening in kids who are 13 years old and it's sky yeah. And it's skyrocketed 70% in the last three years. So thir between 13 and 15. So it's talking about, you know, doing that also having your child be a well-rounded athlete, not just focusing on one thing, because then you're overusing those same muscles and everything. Um, you know, not doing the whole idea of just walk it off, understanding what they're going through and just helping them with their, their mindset. So athletes, um, young adults, parents, those are typically my clients, but just really understanding what kids are going through at that time, because I feel like that was a crucial time in my life. And that's why I've kind of worked with this age. I feel like that was the time in my life. It was such a major turning point. And I felt very misunderstood and I felt very alone. 
um, to no fault of my parents or my sibling, like anything. It just, no one understood what I was going through. So my goal is to help the kids get back on track, but help the parents be an advocate and understand and be there for them. I love that. That's so powerful. I love that. Yeah. And um, for those of you that want, we're going to have a conversation after this more about um, children and teens and, um, you know, students going to college or university and, and some uh, things that Nikki thinks about that or has learned about that. So make sure you subscribe to do that. Um, before we go, I would love to hear um, maybe just a couple coping um, skills or coping tips or things that you've incorporated to your life that are just like must do's to keep you healthy. It's a good question. Um, part of my routine really and this is something that I did, and then I read Jay Shetty talk about it, so that's why I said it resonated so much, is my nighttime routine. My nighttime routine dictates my next day. And so I really take time at night to check in with myself. Um, I stretch. I kind of, I usually do it while watching Sports Center. But I also look at my calendar for the next day. What do I need to be prepared for? If I'm doing a podcast, you know, or am I, do I have more clients? Do I, so it's just understanding what I have going on. And then the other thing is really important is listening to my body. Because at night, again, and this is all part of my nighttime routine, sometimes my body's like, you say you're tired. I am not. And so, like I said, which sometimes seems anti going to sleep, but I will work out at night to exhaust my body. And so when I feel my brain is just zinging and, you know, I feel I can live, sometimes I feel electric inside of me because I'm just firing on all cylinders. And so I calm. Um, meditation has become a huge part of that, grounding myself, making sure I'm not getting lost, uh, just be not being in touch with reality. Uh, sometimes I kind of get very, you know, ethereal thinking and just rather than what's in front of me. And so meditation really helps. And then breath work. We talked about it. Yeah. I I did some breath work right before we got on. Um, I've done a bunch of podcasts, but I always want to make sure that I'm present, that I'm aware. Um, even though I, you know, finished with a client right before, I want to be right there for you and for all your listeners. So that breath work helps me in terms of just creating that presence. And one more really quick one is, um, yeah. I used to have a really hard time with being mindful. Um, my mind is everywhere else, but where it should be. And I noticed that sometimes colors can really bring me back. And so when I'm outside, I will look around and acknowledge the colors that surround me. And there's something with that direct connection of, seeing the colors and then recognizing that's blue, you know, and saying it out loud or saying it in your mind, that color is blue. And it stops me because sometimes I'll just keep going yeah. and it kind of pulls me back. And so by acknowledging colors in the world around me helps me be mindful. I love that. I'm stealing that right <laughs> now here. It barely ever, maybe probably like there barely ever snows. I know everyone thinks in Canada, it snows everywhere. I'm in the one place by the ocean. Like I'm up. Yeah, um, I know where you are. Yeah. yeah. And so, but we've had a 
huge snowfall and it shuts yeah. us all down. Like yeah. there's no school, anything because we don't have the infrastructure and and, and yeah. definitely don't have enough snow plows. But um, when I was thinking about your color thing, I just looked up out and I'm like, that is very white. <laughs> there's a lot of white snow and I've noticed that it's brighter today. So yeah, I, I love that color thing. That's, that's really that's yeah. really cool. And I think we think of mindfulness. Sometimes I, I know I did. I thought of it like that it was like this big thing and this huge lifestyle. And I had to start eating like granola and wear like, you know, very patterned pants or do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. No, like, mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And I had to be like a calm person. Yeah. And it, it's the little things, right? Yeah. Like I, I always like, because I don't like to even try things that I don't think I'm going to be good at. Sometimes I was like, Oh, I can never, I have bipolar. I have this. I can never be mindful. Like, da, 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 da. but I yeah. realized that it all counts. And same with like meditation. I thought, cause I'm all or nothing. I thought, right. well, I have to do at least an hour or it's not for reals. No. Right. And I'm yeah. like, Oh, that counts. Yeah. Right? Like every little bit counts. So you might be listening and being like, yeah, yeah, you guys go with your mindfulness. And you can do it too. Like, I just yeah. really encourage people, all the things that I used to think were like, woo woo help. Right. Yeah. Like if you would have told me to tap, I would have been like, I'm going to yeah. tap you in the neck. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting is we give ourselves such a hard time to like meditation. If we don't do an hour, I mean, I do 15, 20 minutes max. That's what I've learned is my sweet spot. And I stay there. Sometimes I'll do it for a week in a row. Sometimes I don't for a week. But what I've learned is not to beat myself up and just to pick up where I left off. And so if it's mindfulness practices, if it's breathing, anything, don't beat yourself up because you haven't done it as many times as you would hope to just acknowledge that and then pick back up. And then there's no shame. There's no worry about not doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I do, I spend a lot of time in should, like I should yeah. do it this way. I was the same way in university. I was like, you're not studying right. You should be highlighting. I highlighted everything. I never got the concept <laughs> of, I'm like, all these ideas are the main, greatest <laughs> ideas. I'm like, right. I didn't know I had to teach. Highlight the whole book. <laughs> and I'm like, these are like I was even to this day I went into substitute a grade six class and the lesson was like on highlighting the main point and I'm like uh so who wants to come up here and highlight the main point and then I wrote to the teacher I'm like you might want to revisit the whole highlighting thing I don't yeah. know if I did my best work but I like should myself so yeah. I, I I end up stopping myself from doing things because I think it should be done a certain way so I don't even try and yeah I I just want to encourage, encourage other people out there because a lot of times I rolled my eyes and made fun of it, but it was mostly because of my insecurity of thinking that it wasn't something I could do or do well. Right. It's yeah. not, yeah, there's not gold stars in, in, in meditation. Yeah. <laughs> that you we stop ourselves. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, we stop ourselves from doing so many things because of what we should be doing and we're what our expectations and we should be excelling at it and should be no just gotta yeah, just try it and get out there yeah I love that I love that I would love before we end and then go into our our next um talk I would love to hear do you have a word of encouragement for someone right now that's maybe listening that is solo or maybe thinking that they um you know, that they 
don't want to be here. They don't um, matter. I'm wondering if you have a word of an encouragement for them. You know, people use this often, um, this too shall pass, but it has helped me in some very dark times that the idea that there's always tomorrow. And so I've reincorporated that into my personal verbiage, you know, just it's okay. This, this too shall pass, uh, you know, and it just, it's helped me because I get really focused on the here and now, and this is it. And this is the way it's always going to be. And this is the way it's always been. And there's nothing else that's going to change that. Yeah. And now I, yes, exactly. And that's what would get me spiraling. Yeah. And so now what I just kind of pull back and having perspective, I think if that's anything like try to have perspective and, but if you can keep going and you, this will pass. And if you're able to get help, it will pass. So it's just about having hope. Um, and that's really why I share my story is to offer hope. If anyone, you know, I've been in the lowest of lows, hospitalized twice. My second hospitalization, I was in a coma for three days. Wow. Like I was in the worst of worst. And if I can get through that, and be here where I am now, so can anyone else. Yeah. I love what you said there. That's, it is true. Cause in the moment you think it's going to, it is, it's going to be like that forever. Especially when I had used to have like panic attacks. Right. But they always end. And so sometimes I'm just like, uh, my biggest mantra is like, wait it out, wait it out, yeah. wait it out. Right. And that's, and that's so true. And you're right. Like, in mania, everything is really big and then yeah. you have focus, but in depression, it makes your world really, really small. So that's just beautiful that you said, like, yeah, just try to, to just be there and, and hold on, hold on to hope. Right. I yeah, love that. I definitely. Love that. Well, I am so glad that we got to have this conversation. I tell everyone that comes on the podcast, we are now bipolar besties. So expect yes. to hear from me. I love it. Yes, for sure. Uh, it's just this connection that you have with someone that you just look at and you're like, I, I know you understand me. It's this heart, heart connection. And so I am so grateful for the work that you put out in this world. I am so grateful that you have um, described to me a coaching that I can get behind that I think is <laughs> really, really amazing. And I all, um, if anybody is interested, we'll have your all your information in the show notes they can contact you also if they're interested in the type of coaching school the jay shetty work that you've done that would be yeah we'll put it all there and go and follow and cheer on nikki as she does this beautiful amazing amazing work thank you so much thank you for having me yeah this is bipolar Thanks again for tuning in. You can find video versions of This Is Bipolar on our YouTube channel. We also have all our previous and soon to be future episodes of the podcast on Apple, Podbean, Spotify, and Google Play. We spend most of our time on Instagram 
at this.is.bipolar. There is a vibrant community there where we have conversations and post different ideas and different strategies and we'd just love for you to join us there. It is so helpful if you enjoy our work or think it would be helpful to someone if you could like and share and save and follow us in all or any of those spaces. If you're a listener for the podcast, if you could leave a review, we would be forever grateful. Again, thank you for being here with us. Let's get the word out. Let's share lived experiences so that we can change the ideas that people have about bipolar and help those of us that live with it feel less alone. This is bipolar.